Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Now, today's guest has been on the podcast once before. Okay, she's a globally renowned celebrity therapist over 30 years experience working with clients from royalty to rock stars, celebrities to CEOs, and even Olympic athletes. Having achieved unparalleled results, she founded the multi-award winning Rapid Transformational Therapy, RTT, the cutting edge method and hybrid solution based treatment that can deliver extraordinary transformations. Named Best British Therapist by Men's Health Magazine, her technique is based on the scientific phenomenon of neuroplasticity, which helps her clients literally rewire their minds for astonishing instant and permanent results. She's the best-selling author of five books highlighting the wonders of transformational hypnotherapy in varying fields such as losing weight, getting pregnant, gaining confidence, and staying young. She is a global superstar, the world authority on this subject, and she's adorable too. Cue the music for the amazing Marissa Peer. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Marissa, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Well, it's lovely to be here. You in the flesh is different to you on Zoom. You know, I interviewed you in COVID. Indeed, on Zoom. And to see you in the flesh, and obviously I've spent a bit of time with you now and get to know you, and... Um, you're such a character, aren't you? When you when you start to kind of unravel the, the the layers, am I? I don't know. I never know anything about yourself, but if you say so, I definitely take that. Well, I've certainly enjoyed our interaction so oh, thank far. You, me too. I have as well. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what you do, why you do it, and where that all started. Because for me, looking at your journey and moving into the RTT, which we're going to talk about today, um, was really interesting. Now, if you go back to when you were, were young, dad was a teacher. He was a head teacher. He was a head, head teacher. Yeah. And mum was, you know, I can obviously see from the genes as they poured down, mum was very glamorous and beautiful too, yeah? And very unhappy, yeah. Hmm. It was an interesting thing. So my father was very cerebral, loved his job, got immense joy from his job. And my mother was very beautiful. And I would say unfulfilled with a capital U. And I, even as a child, I realized very quickly you must have a job that fulfills you because that's the key to being happy because that's the message I saw. You know, when, when in a family, you must learn what you live. Wherever you're living, you learn a message. And my message was, looks, don't do anything for you. But a job that is fulfilling and gives back is everything. Most people that are good looking don't think they're good looking. They're looking at something that mm. they've got wrong, haven't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. And so... I suppose it's, you know, other people look at them and maybe admire them, but they can't see that themselves because it may be, well, I've got this wonky bit on my elbow, yeah. you know, or my, or my knees are knobbly yeah. or something, you know. Um, and so I always look, imagine people never never to really understand quite how, how beautiful they look. Yeah, I remember talking to Patty Boyd once, who is an amazing character, and of course something in the way she moves, Layla and wonderful, and I've all written about Patty. And asked her what that meant to her. And she said it was horrible because people expected this goddess to walk in the room. And I never felt like a goddess. In fact, because of those three songs, I felt one thing. 
I'm going to disappoint people because they're expecting something amazing. Because imagine having those three songs, think, oh my God, that must be amazing. He says, no, it wasn't amazing. It was a bit of a curse, really, because I fully expected to disappoint people. And I always felt that I did. She was never going to live up to the expectations. It's too much to live up to. You know, when, and another of my clients that I was voted in FHM's most gorgeous women of, I don't know, 1989. But then my first thought was, what if I'm not in it next year? So what we think is a blessing is for many people a curse. So your mum had these good looks and dad was a head teacher. So he was a career educator. Yeah. He, his whole life was about helping people. That was his whole purpose and passion. And, you know, when he died recently in 2016, I was talking to him and he said, I've had a wonderful life. I've had the best job in the world. And that's a great thing when you think I've had the great, he had no regrets whatsoever because he felt his life was for, he had meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And that was a big lesson to me, you know, if you can have meaning and purpose and fulfillment in what you do, A, you never feel you've worked a day in your life and B, you always have tremendous joy because you get back so much. There are so many people that that don't know that's the root cause of their problem. I know. You know, that lack of meaning and purpose and yeah. that exists. You know, you see sometimes with these people that come into money, they win the lottery or something. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, why? what do I need to live for? Yeah. There's no mission anymore. And I've seen a lot of incredibly wealthy children who travel the world just, and they're so miserable because they don't have purpose. Oh, what shall I buy next? You know, I'll buy this and do that. But, um, yeah, my dad taught me a great lesson. Find something that gives you joy. And you'll never feel like you work a day in your life. And that's really why I created our TT. And now we've got over 15,000 people we've trained who've got the same thing. I have this career that gives me joy. I give a lot and I get back a lot. And, you know, I trained quite a famous fashion designer from Italy. And he said to me, you know, I looked in this kid's eyes when I fixed his stutter and said, that's me for the rest of my life. I'll never go back to fashion because it's very vacuous. But this is everything. That's so interesting. Yeah. To, to, with your mum and dad, who, who were you more like? Oh, definitely my father, definitely. I think I identified with him because, you know, I wasn't beautiful. I felt like a real geeky. I mean, I was tall. I had very skinny legs. I didn't feel beautiful at all. But I also saw very quickly, well, that's not the route to happiness anyway because my mother was very beautiful but really unhappy. But I'm actually glad I saw that so early because I never wanted to go down that route. Um, I always wanted to go down the route. I saw my father, you know, he liked helping people. So that very much shaped me and I'm very glad it did. So uh, out of the two, if you were more like your dad, who championed you? Who was who was the one that was behind you out of the two? Oh, again, it would be my dad. I mean, my mother was very unhappy. I mean, she was lovely. She had many lovely qualities, but she couldn't champion me because she showed me every day that she was unhappy. She was very dramatic, very highly strung. And I remember looking, thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to go that way. Or that was definitely my father's way. And he, I loved talking to him. He was very interesting. And then, and some people have this, they have this unusual relationship with their grandmother. Mm. So I look at my two daughters and my, my mum lives in Cyprus mm. and they speak to my mum three or four times a week. Yeah. And they love talking to Nana. Mm. Like they love talking to Nana. If they have the choice of going to spend a weekend with Nana or a weekend mm. with me, Nana. Yeah. It's like always, always Nana. Nana's like, mm. you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that I've never told before. Okay. Um, I've told on camera before anyway. So my, my daughter Taylor, she went very quiet for a couple of weeks. I couldn't get hold of her. And that's unlike her. I can always get hold of her. 
And I was like, wondering what's wrong with her. And two weeks later, she's like, Dad, I'm really sorry I've not been in touch, but I needed some space because I needed to do something. Now, and this was all on a text message. Now, mm -hmm. Dad, I just want you to know the reason that I didn't contact you about this is that I feared you might talk me out of it. But I know you love me and I need you to hear my problem. I've struggled with issues of having um, uh, a small chest and it's given me a lack of confidence and it's always bothered me and I've got self-esteem issues around it. And I know you want me to be happy. And so what I decided to do was to have breast augmentation. Mm. And I didn't talk to you about it, but I do know you want me to be happy. And I know mm. it's really important for you that I'm happy. But I know you'd be concerned because I'm only in my early 20s. Mm. And this is the message read. But I just want you to know, I've had this done. I had the operation done. I'm recovering now. I'm fine. Um, and so there you go. So I say to Anna, what on earth is going on? Why hasn't she communicated mm. that to me? Do you, what do you know about it, Anna? Are you in on this? Mm. And Anna's like, no, no, I had no idea at all. Didn't know anything about it. So the first thing I then do is I'm, I phone my mum up. As I phone my mum, I'm like, where, where's she getting this money from? So I phoned my mum, I said, mum, um, Taylor's had a boob job. And then my mum goes, oh yeah, because she told you, yeah? Mm. I was like, what do you mean she told me? You knew. She goes, yeah, yeah, I knew, but she told me that she wanted to tell you herself. I'm like, okay, fair enough, I understand that. I said, where on earth did she get the money to have a boob job? That's five, six, seven, eight thousand pounds. And my mum went, I paid for it. For it, of course. And I was like, what do you mean you paid for it? Do you not think you should ask me first? She said, she's my granddaughter. And stood firm on that point. Mm. And it was a, a great example of, of my daughter and her relationship with her grandmother mm. about how close they were that she felt she could go and talk to her about it. Okay. And work out how they could execute on a plan. Mm. And it just demonstrated to me that connection that they have. With your grandmother, what was the connection that you had? Oh, she was everything to me, my grandmother. Everything. Even more than my father, my grandmother was. If I had to pick one person that shaped me, it would have been her because she believed in me. And actually, when I became a therapist, I would say to all my clients and all my students I trained, you need one person in the world to believe in you to get through life. One person that has you, about one person that advocates for you and champions you. For many therapists, you are that one person. Often we have, I've seen many suicidal teenagers. And if I believe in them and tell them that, that's something for them because they feel that no one believes. Many kids that take their life or try to will say, no one believes in me. No one cares about me. No one really sees who I am. And so for me, she was the only person when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't a terrible childhood. I mean, God, every day I see really people with examples of terrible childhood. I literally lived in a house with a white picket fence. It was a very nice house. My dad was the local headmaster. Everyone worshipped him. But actually, when I look at it now, it was a crazy childhood. I mean, it was just so, it wasn't what it seemed at all. And I think I was a very unhappy child because my father was very busy, loving, and really, he was paid to really care about other people's kids. And my mother was just falling apart. And so, but I had my grandmother, and so she was everything. I dedicate all my books to her. I gave my daughter her middle name. In fact, I even used her name in all my passwords because she was so important to me. Wow. And do you think that because your your, your dad was almost giving love, support and praise to all of his students yes. that you were the one that he didn't. Yeah, I very much felt I wasn't enough. You know, I created the I'm Enough movement, which I'm very proud of because so many people feel not enough. 
And just because your father is a famous doctor or an incredible actor, I mean, look at Paul Newman's son. He shot himself. I mean, many children that come from parents are either super successful or super famous or really good at their job feel terribly inadequate because, you know, Julian Lennon said, we used to come up and go, my God, I loved your dad, John Lennon. I mean, I'm grieving him. And he's like, it's my freaking dad. I mean... And I think, I, I can't get over your dad's death. And he's, I couldn't even mourn my dad. I mean, I had to share him with the whole world. He wasn't really my dad. He was everyone's hero. My dad was really everyone's hero, which was lovely for him. But I never felt good enough because he was very interested in other people's children. He was paid to do that. But it can be very damaging if you have a parent who's great at something because you feel very much in their shadow and you see them all the time being invested in other people, not you. I mean, oh gosh, who was a great doctor who wrote, he'll come to me in a minute, Bernie Siegel, who said, you know, my own son had bone cancer. I said, have a bath. I didn't even know. I was so busy looking after my patients that I didn't recognize that my own son had bone cancer and kind of was dismissive of it. So it's very interesting when you're the child of someone big in many different ways. I mean, my father wasn't famous, but he was certainly known for being an amazing um, advocate for children. But that can be very damaging. You know that thing about the tailors, sorry, the cobbler's children are always the worst shot. My father used to say that all the time because he knew it was true. But um, I had my grandmother who really believed in me. I think I'd have been a delinquent if I didn't have her. Interesting. I, as you're talking about your dad, I'm thinking about mine, mm. and 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 my my dad and mum got divorced when I was seven, and dad left home, and it it I've never I've never ended a relationship with anybody. Mm. I've always either engineered it so that they would leave me, or waited for that to happen, because I feel such a a, a sense of abandonment. Yeah, and it. It, from my dad feeling that he had to go away and not only leave the house then go and work overseas and stuff that it was like a personal dig at me at yeah it's like you're leaving me you you decided to leave me i didn't yeah. leave you well that's always a way with a child you see when a parent doesn't appear to love their child for whatever reason and maybe they really do love them but the child doesn't feel it the child doesn't stop loving the parent they immediately stop loving themselves so a child will say, you know, daddy's always at work. But what they're really saying is because he likes work more than me. Mommy's always out. You know, she's a nurse. But what they're saying is, what they're thinking is, and she likes those patients more than me. They're never here. Daddy's divorced mommy. But what they're really thinking is because he doesn't love me. And that's the problem. That you, And when I tell patients that, look, when your parents didn't appear to love you, you didn't stop loving them because you're, after all, a dependent child that means you're dependent on your parents for your survival for your self-esteem but the child can't think oh my dad's an alcoholic my mom's unhappy my dad's working three jobs to pay my school fees anything one thing i'm not lovable enough and that's why they're not here or busy or crying or angry or distracted or drinking it's because I'm not enough because the child doesn't have the intellect to think oh look my parents are clearly so well matched all they can ever think is I'm not enough and that's why they're unhappy not together so of course you felt that you couldn't have possibly felt any other thing than I'm not enough when your father left because that's how you see the world and a child can't see it any other way
And that's the damage that goes in and often lasts for an entire lifetime. And it's the damage that our TT is really super efficient at unpicking and unraveling and putting right. So what makes my situation worse is that I grew up never wanting my kids to experience that. And I don't think I was aware of it as much sure. as, I, as I got older. But my my kids then went to live a life where I did exactly the same. Of course. You learn what you live. You can't help it. You learn what you live. You know, if you look at Princess Diana, I thought that was so interesting. Her, pair, her parents had to have a son. They had three daughters. Finally, they had a son. And then they got divorced. And then... Her brother married Victoria, had three daughters, finally had a son, and then got divorced. Isn't that weird how we see life repeating itself so clearly because we play the only part we've ever known and then we make that part our own. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, very, it's fascinating. Oh, I want to go into this, but I need to get the story right first. Okay, so I grew up in the, well, I was born in 1970, so I was a teenager in the 80s. We had great breakfast television on, and so we had uh, Mr. Motivator. Oh, yeah, I remember him. And the, he, and the Green Goddess. The Green God, I remember yeah. that too. Okay, so we had them on Mad telly. Um, and they'd be up in the morning, come on, get up and do your stuff. Come on, yeah. let's go. And they'd have some music pumping, and whoever the presenters were, I forget now, um, uh, Anne Diamond, mm -hmm. that was one of them, wasn't it? Yeah, and they, Selena Scott. Selena Scott, that's right. And we did Frank Barr. You remember them all, yeah. Great memory. And they do their, they would do their kind of like five or ten minutes of that to get us going. Yeah. And kind of aerobics was big. Um, fame, the TV oh, show was yeah. big. So everyone was wearing those. What were those? Those um, Leg warmers. Leg warmers, that's right. I leg warmers. Wear a, a, okay, great. Um, we were roller skating, not roller blading. Roller. Yeah. Um, we went to the roller disco, mm -hmm. you know, that well. kind of stuff. And so in the 80s, in that time that I grew up, it was it was a big thing, you know. There, there, there wasn't the, the kind of the, the fitness DVDs or videos mm. that like, like there are today. We, we went to aerobics classes. Yeah, you know. Now, uh, in the nineties and a bit later, something called Zumba came along. Yeah. and kind of like was like a take on that, and there was other stuff. Mm -hmm. But aerobics was the thing. It was the thing. So you went over to the states and 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 were in teaching aerobics. Well, first of all, I taught for Pineapple Dance Center, which oh well, that's the richest one in the yeah. UK. So I was Pineapple Dance. Yeah, I was there best teacher. I was their most successful teacher. So I left college deciding, because I was initially going to be a school teacher. I wanted to be an infant teacher, teacher of small children, because I saw my father doing that and I saw how much he loved it. He taught secondary school, but I wanted to teach small children, loved small children. And I went to teach training college and I realized very quickly, no, I don't want to do this at all. So by a stroke of luck, I ended up working for Pineapple Dance Studios which I loved. It was amazing. And then I went across to America and began to work for Jane Fonda in the massive, I mean, I was right in the middle of that aerobic boom. And it was such fun. It was great. I mean, imagine you're doing four aerobic classes a day. I lived in leggings and um, leg warmers and leotard. I don't think I ever wore any clothes. That's my, I got up and put that on and wore that all day. But that was my journey actually into therapy because I realized very quickly that Every other girl at Jane Fonda's work, maybe every third girl at Jane Fonda's workout studio in South Robertson Boulevard was anorexic, bulimic, body dysmorphic, exercising, or orthorexic, which is everything's going to be clean and organic. And, and they were all trying to cure it with aerobics. And I was thinking, no, this is a mental illness. You can't cure anorexia with aerobics. You can't cure bulimia 
with aerobics. And um, it was very normal to find bags of vomit in the changing room after each class because people would make themselves sick and then work out or they'd take speed. So they'd work out even faster. And it was a bit crazy. It was actually crazy. I mean, Jane is lovely. I love her. I love the fitness thing. But the, the madness of people with eating disorders working or turning up with a flu in a blanket going, I've got to work out because how many calories are in that cough medicine? Wow. And it was my first insight into the mind. It's like one of the things about the mind is it can't hold conflicting beliefs. And here's a belief. I love food but I want to be really skinny. You know, I, I love eating, but I, I, I hate food, which was actually the bulimics taught me everything because they'd say, I'd say, what do you love? They'd go, I love food. I shop for food. I buy recipe books. What do you hate? Well, I hate eating. I have to make myself sick afterwards. And I said, what do you love? I, I love walking down the aisles of Marks and Spencers and I read, what do you hate? Well, I hate eating. I limit myself to one apple and one hard-boiled egg a day. So that was my first inkling of, oh, right, this, the mind is so easy to understand. But when you love and hate the same thing, so this is the highway of your life. But you can't be in two lanes. I want love, but you always get dumped. I want success, but you never know who your friends are. I want to be thin, but I really love cakes and cookies. And so then I studied hypnosis because I knew it was the fastest way showing people you can't be in two highways at the same time. You've got to get into one. So think of the one you want to be in and change your language. I love food because I love super healthy food and I love eating, but when I've had enough, I stop. Rather than this crazy, I love food, I can't get enough, but I've got to be thin, so I'm going to deny myself food, and now I'm going crazy because I'm denying myself food for five days and then eating six cheesecakes on the sixth day because because of the way you're running your mind. So okay. I owe everything to Jane Fonda. Maybe we can take an example here and put that into real life right now. Yeah. Okay. Would, you, would you mind? With no, I'd love to. A vegan would never go, oh God, today I'm going to get up and try so hard not to eat bacon. And I'm going to try really hard not to eat pork. And I'm going to try really hard not to eat meat. Because they're very clear that um, eating animals is painful to them. And so they never have a problem avoiding meat. Even if they were on a plane and there was no other food, they go, no, I mean, I was a vegan for a while. I remember being on a plane to Hawaii, and I said, well, I just won't eat then. If you don't have anything that doesn't have meat in it, I won't eat anything. And I did that, too, because that was my mindset. But, you see, someone who likes food and then says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go down to 80 kilos, I'm gonna and you're, I'm going to deny myself everything, I'm going to cut it all out of my life, I'm going to forego it, I'm going to give it up. But, you see, the mind links pain to loss or pain is linked to the word loss, including losing weight, by the way. So when you're going to lose weight, I'm going to lose weight, you're really thinking, I've got to get all that of that back. Because if you think about 500 years ago, if you took your baby, you know, if the baby's lost weight, they go, that's a terrible thing. You know, still in Africa, they call AIDS the going skinny disease or the thin disease. So the mind doesn't like weight loss. All pain is linked to loss. And, and when you talk about I've lost weight and the one who loses the most is the winner, your brain's already thinking, I'm getting all of that back with a few friends as soon as I can. So how do you get around it? You cut the word loss out of your life completely and say, for instance, I'm going to drop a few pounds I don't need. I'm going to regain super health. I'm going to be really fit and show all my muscles off. But you, And you can use anything. I'm discarding, dropping, shedding. You can't use the word loss because the mind is hardwired and super coded to get back anything you've lost. For instance, in prison, people say you can't lose face. If someone hits, you've got to hit them back. You cannot lose face. People say, 
Well, who dumped you? I, I was the dumper because we don't want to say, yeah, I was dumped. People get fired from work and they'll talk about that. You know, we, we see people, especially in America, going in and shooting up the company that fired them because we lose face. You know, if, if you have, there's a game I play when I'm, I've got a program called Dietless Life, which is all about dieting is based on abuse. It's based on self-hatred. And it's the worst thing you can do to go on a diet. In fact, 90% of people who go on a diet will be heavier than ever before they started the dieting because it lowers your metabolic rate. It messes up your body. But you, you got to cut out this word loss. So for you, when you were going on this program, tell me what kind of things you were saying to the partner. I'm going to lose eight kilos. What else were you saying? Um, so I was I was saying to myself, I want to lose eight kilos, be, eight, be 80, 80 kilos. I want to lose body fat mm -hmm. um, and because uh, uh, I want to win the competition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, you already said the word loss twice. I mean, if you go to a football match and see the losing team, they'll always come and say, well, we'll, we'll next year, we'll come back next year because, you know, I was working with a very famous tennis player at Wimbledon and he said, I lost her, but you didn't lose. You came second at Wimbledon, but he said, but nobody cares about who came second. They only care about the winner. So, if they're the winner, I'm the loser. And so there's no good word for loss. So this game I play when teaching dietless life is think of something good to lose. And most people can't think of anything. They say, what about your inhibitions? But if you're walking around naked in the street, that, that's not a good thing to lose. <laughs> so gain is a really good word. You gain a degree, you gain status, you gain credibility. And loss is a very painful word. In fact, there's nothing good that you can lose. Can you think of anything great uh, to lose? Yeah, as, you're, as you're talking about it, I'm saying so, there's got to be something. Yeah, I've lost my mind. I lost the phone. I've lost the client. I lost my business. I lost the baby. We lose our looks. You know, loss is a horrible word. And so just take the word loss out of it. Totally take it out and start to say other things like, wow, I'm 80 kilos is great for me. I'm regaining health and fitness and muscle tone. And I'm just shedding that that stuff I don't need and then you won't have that drive to get it back because when you lose something your mind tries very hard to get it back because of the pain linked to that word loss that, that whole play on language fascinates me me too because you're, you're dealing I mean I'm, I, when we had dinner the other night I was conscious after saying a few things I was conscious of what I said out loud mm. to you because I'm 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 acutely aware of how you look at the the words that we use to yeah. self-describe. You know, um, I I think I said when we were at dinner I have a terrible memory. Yeah, and I know that for you is that no, you don't have a terrible memory. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's just a that's a story you're telling yourself. Oh, yeah, when we talk about um, money, I find mm -hmm. the story that people have around money is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Um, you know, you could take two people, both earning $100,000 a year, both living in the same property or a property next door to each other, uh, and one has more cash than they know what to do with, mm. and the other one sat there and, and they've got mm. credit card debts and, then, you know, and they're struggling to keep up and pay mm. their installments and worrying about how the next bill's going to be paid. And that isn't the minority, that's the majority oh, of yeah. people. And it doesn't matter what class you're from, you know, whether you're middle class or lower class, or blue collar or white collar workers, it still exists mm. in exactly the same way. You can land a top job, okay? And I've worked with guys that have had top jobs earning really, really good money, um, and they've got nothing to show nothing, for it. Yeah. There's a particular lad here in Dubai at the moment who I'm very fond of. His name's Connor. He's a real estate broker. 
And he, he sold some of the most expensive properties in Dubai. He's only 23, 24 years old and he's mm. making a shed ton of cash. But on social media, I'm, I just can see him spending it all. Mm. Of course. And, I'm, and I, you know, he comes from a, a council house in Northern Ireland. So mm. he comes from a very poor upbringing or a very reasonably poor upbringing. And I'm, I'm watching him. And mm. all I'm doing is I'm screaming at the phone going, Connor, no, Connor, no, you know, be sensible, do the right thing. You know, let's let, let's plan your future because with the money he's earning, he, he could secure his yeah, future forever. But I keep seeing him in the Dior shop and I keep seeing But, him. you know, here's the learn what you live. If you come from a council house and your parent, your parent has a limited wage, what happens is you get the money on Friday and you spend it all. So you get your pay back here. And you pay the bills and you buy the food. And then at the end of the week, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And that kind of person, when they win the lottery, what do you think they do? They get the money and they spend it because that's what they've lived. Buy a car, buy a house, buy another car, buy a restaurant. But if you come from a family where you invest, so 70% of lottery winners are totally bankrupt in three years, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary when you think about it. They've got millions and millions of pounds, but they spend it all because no one's talking about investing, but someone who's come from money says, oh, I'm gonna invest that and I'm gonna put that here and that's gonna grow and how can I make my money grow? So when they win the lottery, they just continue learning what they've lived, which is either investing or not. You know, my brother went to private school and I went to state school. And even then I noticed that I would do math and my math was, you have eight apples and you give three away, how many you got left? Well, I've got five left, but I've given But well, my brother's math was you have 11 businesses and you sell four. How many you got left? Well, we know how many you've got left, but my brother's got all the equity. So my equity, I was eating it or giving it away, but his equity was growth. So even the way we teach math at school is interesting to people. But, you know, you learn your relationship with money is pretty much set before you are five. So do you think when we look at the education system and we see that kids aren't taught talk cash flow, they're not taught yeah. credit cards, they're not called they're out not balance anything books, like that. none of that's taught. No. They know algebra and Pythagoras' yeah. theory and shit like that, but they don't know how to manage or balance a bank. Yeah. Do you think if you if you taught them that at school, do you think that would solve the problem or do you think the problem is so embedded in them from, from their own up? bring in that well yeah to change you never change money <coughs> problems with money there are many people who say you know my kids got all this and i'm giving them more money and more money and we're not really getting anywhere with my kid learning this and so because your money beliefs are set very early on you have to teach children about you know when i was a single parent i actually didn't have money you know i was a single parent i put my daughter into private school but that took everything i had and my daughter said mommy do we have money and i go darling we've got so much wealth we are so wealthy. We're so. I never talked about money. I say we're rich. We're wealthy. We've got everything. We go and feed homeless people at Christmas and come out and go. Look how much we've got. We've got a house. We've got a fire. We've got food in the fridge. And I never wanted to get into that poverty mindset of seeing me struggling, as I realised that as a single parent, I was a therapist and I was pretty successful. But school fees are a lot, and I was paying for everything myself: the mortgage, the bills. And I realised I could pay for it to go to private school. Or go on holiday, but not both. And of course, in private school, all of the kids went on holiday three times a year. And I was very, I didn't want her to be the poor relative, because once you buy into that, that becomes your identity. So very much your words shape your reality. And when the words are, I can't find the money, which is a weird thing to say to a kid, mom, can I go to the cinema? I can't find the money, because nobody finds money. You monetize the skill. And so many parents say, I don't know where the money's coming from. 
I can't find it. We don't have it. I haven't got enough money. I've, I've run out of money before the week's ended. And money doesn't grow on trees. And I can't afford it. And who do you think I am? And that leaves children with a very strange belief. Well, we can't find the money. And there isn't enough money. And I don't know where the money's coming from. Whereas with children, what you should do very early. So my little girl said, Mommy, I, I want to have this Barbie. I go, okay. Well, when you get 100 stars, you'll have the Barbie. And if I went shopping, she'd go, Mommy, can, can I have that gift? And you go, oh, no, no, I haven't got the money. I'd always go, yeah, you can definitely have that. You can have that for Christmas or you can have that for you. I never said, no, we don't have the money because I know what that did to me. I'd say, yes, certainly you can have that Sylvanian dream house that you can have that for Christmas or Easter or birthday. And I would teach her, you got to earn 100 stars now to get that. But then a lot of people do this to go, okay, you got to do the dishes every day. And that's really a bad idea because now you're going to do something I hate, something menial and horrible to get money. And that's also a bad thing. So as hard as you've got to find something your kid can do. Like I said, well, you can be my assistant today. You can sit and do this. I mean, she couldn't do it properly, but it didn't matter. She'd get a hundred stars. She'd get the gift. She never even played with the gift. It was not important. She forgot all about that. But it was about this bartering. Like, what can you do to get the ability to get what you want? What skill have you got? You, you're gifted at something. But making your kid take out the trash and do the gardening and do the washing up it sounds so great, but actually you're teaching them. You've got to do something menial that no one else wants to do just to get a bit of money. As opposed to um, if you read this book. Yeah. Yeah, if you read this book, you can do that. If you help mummy balance her bank account, if you sit here and be my assistant for a couple of hours and tidy up, make some appointments. I mean, they can't really do it properly, but they're thinking, oh, wow, I'm earning money because I'm reading this book, I'm, I'm watching this show, and I'm learning something. And so then they're learning that they can monetize a skill. Like, hey, you're really good at art. I want you to do, do some cards for mummy. To, so instead of buying the cards, you can make them. And now they've learned, because my daughter is an artist, so she, they learn, wow, I can be paid for my art. Or maybe you're really good at design, so design something or do something strategic. It's, it's not easy for parents, but even if you say, hey, why don't you comb my hair? and wash my hair, then they go, oh, I get money for helping people style themselves. Anything apart from washing the dishes and emptying the, try to move away from menial and find something creative. Like you could say, hey, could you, um, I mean, tidying up the house is okay, but try and make it more fun. Like place these things in a way that mummy can find them better. Make something, oh, I'm using your imagination now. I'm placing these things better. It just, just relating to that with kids, when, when's the age? Because you hear about this, you know, at four years old and seven years old, they're at different stages of, of like memory and learning. Just, just to run me through that. So your child is born. Yeah. You know, people ask me what my first memory is. So I can go back to my earliest memory is learning to ride a bike. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's, the, that's the thing. Yeah. I can't remember the earliest memory with my mum, though. Isn't that interesting? Because your earliest memory is how you see the world. Your earliest memory is often how you see the world and how you've shaped your vision of the world. Okay, so, so I was- learning to ride a bike, which is you did something for yourself or have a great sense of achievement because you rode that bike. But I was, I was, let's say four years old. Then what, what happens at seven years old mm -hmm. that, that kind of cements stuff in yeah. uh, for eternity? Between the age of seven and 14, what you love to do at that age is your key indicator of your skill set. 
So whatever you love, love to do between 7 and 14 is an indicator of what you're meant to do with your entire life. It, it, the things that you love then is an indicator of what you're good at, what your gifts are, what your unique skill set is, and what you should be doing with your entire life. So when I, when I was 7 and 14, I was always writing these stories. When I was always writing stories about troubled families and unhappy people, which is so funny that I became a therapist but and a writer, but that's what I was always doing, writing writing, illustrating stories. My daughter used to always make little outfits out of Kleenex for her Sylvanian families and her dolls. Now she's got her own fashion line and she was always drawing. She's an artist. Someone else said I was always doing puzzles and here I am as a strategist. So at seven, you're beginning to see your gifts. Terrible if people don't recognize and go, that's silly. I'll never make money doing that. That's ridiculous. But at seven, you're really, your mind is understanding what makes you tick. What makes your heart sing? What are you good at? And if you're lucky, you'll have a parent who shapes that and goes, oh, yeah, you're really good at this, so let's let's go further. You're really good at singing or dancing or karate or ballet or maybe you're really good at inventing. Let's nurture that because that's probably where you're going to go. Like many people at seven start love to love to cook. Like Jamie Oliver always talks about that, being in his father's pub, even as a young boy, and realizing that cooking made his heart sing. And luckily, his parents encouraged that. But if your parent says, oh, there's no money in that, that's never going to work. You can't do that. You've got to go into the family law firm. You've got to go into the family accountancy. That really crushes children's so, spirits. So what what happens then when you have acts of encouragement and discouragement? Mm -hmm. So because the, 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 the reaction from a discouragement mm. could be, I'll show you. Can be, yeah. it can be, yeah. And the, the, the and encouragement is people believe in me, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. And so I've over the years, it's like it's people not believing in mm. me. See, I had as, that too. I had the inspired, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Inspired me or yeah. motivated me, or yeah. and it wasn't necessarily only parents or anything. It was everybody. Mm. It was like you're never going to make it. Mm. And I was like, right, yeah. you want to bet? You. Yeah, you want to bet? Yeah, Meryl Streep did that. She went up for the part that Jessica Lange got in King Kong and the director just one side said, Meryl, let me help you. I said, you're not beautiful. You'll never make it in Hollywood. Go home and do something else. And she said, that's one opinion. In the sea of opinions, I think I'll find a different opinion. And luckily she did, because if everybody saw her in Out of Africa where Robert Redd was washing her hair, she looked so beautiful. But being an actress is more than being beautiful. There's many amazing actresses. Who, who their acting is not linked. Look at Helen Mirren, for instance, and Angela Ross. Oh, there was something about Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah, when she was younger, she was very hot. I do believe yeah. that. But but when she played the Queen, when she she's yeah. had a long career, she's in her seventies. But we wouldn't look at Helen and go, "Wow, Helen's beautiful." And I like that. You say Helen is a phenomenal actress. Meryl Streep is a phenomenal actress. It must be awful to say, "Oh, you're such you're beautiful," because. When you're beautiful, you're in a taxi and the meter's running and you can't keep that no matter how much you try. It eventually leaves you. But when you can be loved for a skill, a gift, a talent, you know, being a great writer, being funny, being an artist, it doesn't matter so much about what you look like. But yes, Helen was beautiful when she was in the Royal Shakespeare. In her heyday, she was gorgeous. But she didn't get acting parts because she was beautiful. She got them because she was a brilliant actress. In, in in life, there are, in many aspects of life, there are winners and losers. Uh -huh. And in a school sports day, mm -hmm. there's there's winners and losers. Yeah. 
but the world changed. You know, when I was in a school sports day, it was gold, silver, bronze, and everybody else was like, oh, well. Yeah, nobody even cares about the yeah. bronze, really. No, they don't care about that. They don't care about the silver, really. It's just yeah. they, they, you, but that, that's yeah. what it was. Gold, silver, mm -hmm. bronze, and you get a certificate and a medal. Yeah. Everybody else in the running race or the long jump or whatever yeah. it was got nothing. Yeah. Nowadays, or then it moved into a place where everyone gets everyone problems. gets something. I know, which is and crazy. You so you don't agree no, with that? No, I don't agree with it at all. Okay, and the reason I don't agree with it is is that I'll show you people. Yeah. So, where's where, how do you work out? You know, how does a teacher work out? Let alone a parent work out whether it's acts of encouragement or discouragement that will get mm -hmm. the best out of the child. You see, I think school should reward effort and not achievement. A naturally gifted kid will win all the prizes and they don't even have to work hard. They're just gifted. I saw that at my daughter. There was one girl and she was gifted at art and, and English and she won every prize. And every time that kid got, we saw the her clips, we go, oh, what's the point? You know, nobody was ever going to win. But you should not reward achievement. You should reward effort. You say, look, I know you spent a long time on that. You spent a long time doing that. And it wasn't kind of perfect, but I see the effort. You're going to reward you for effort. So if you reward people for effort, they learn to work really hard. If you reward them for achievement, that doesn't always work because they can cheat and they can do it easily. But the biggest thing for children is to build their self-esteem, and that's what rewarding effort does because every school and every parent, your job really is to raise kids with healthy self-esteem. If they have healthy self-esteem, they'll have it. I'll show you. I can do it. I know I can do it. You know, we just put in this pro program into schools where we're putting a cheerleader into kids' imagination that believes them and cheers them on, and they academically have done so much better just with that. Hold so on, the, just explain that. Okay. So we have a thing called the five-day challenge, and children over five days create a cheerleader. They design it, they create it, they, they give it certainly, and then they believe, and they talk about it like it's real, and they go, oh, he believes in me, he tells me, they tell me. You've got this. And so the cheerleader is not only making them believe in themselves, it's also shutting down the critic because the critic's like, that's not going to work. You're never going to do that. And um, I'm very proud of our inner cheerleader because I've seen the difference. We were up for a massive award last year for something so innovative in education. I'll send you the, um, send you the footage of it. But children who have self-belief will do so much better than those who don't. You know, I have a saying I love, and it says, Belief without talent will take you further than talent without belief. But when you have both, actually, no, am I getting that the right way around? Belief without talent, yes, will take you further than talent without belief. If you have both, you're unstoppable. We've seen people in things like the X Factor, the joking one, will not be, but they go so far because they have belief. I'm amazing, I'm extraordinary. And so if you can put belief into people, and then add up to, look, you do have a talent. You you do have, so even if you don't think you've got a talent, you've got a talent. So belief, marriage, a talent will make you unstoppable. And of course, you're, I'll show you, meant that somewhere you had a belief inside, I'm going to do this. I had that too, I'll show you. But you have to have a belief to have the I'll show you. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. And so what you want to nurture is belief. You can do this, you can be someone, you have a gift. You can monetize it. And it's all about filling us up with a belief. You're here for a reason. you got a gift you can monetize. There's something you can do better than anyone else. And if you can put that into children, it's so much more important than giving them organic broccoli or mandarin lessons or anything like that. Everything starts with a belief. And a belief is nothing more than a thought you think a lot. So you and I had a belief. 
I'll show you. We don't even know where that came from, but we know that that was our saving grace, and that's what you have to give to your children, a belief. You know, I've seen many kids who are adopted all say, you know, but my parents didn't love me because they gave me away. And when I had my own baby, I'm like, wow, how could someone give me away? But often the truth is they were loved so much that the parent sacrificed that to give that child a better life. But it's hard for people to understand that. It's hard for people. You know, I've worked with many fathers who say, I left my marriage, I left my kids. I was useless. I was an alcoholic. They're better off without me. I left them and I thought my wife will marry so I'm doing them a favor. But, but they don't know that. They have no idea that the dad feels so inadequate. He's removed himself. They can only think, well, he doesn't love me. Mm. And so you've you got to tell children the truth a lot. And when a parent leaves or doesn't visit the kid, they can only ever work out that they're not lovable. It's better to tell them the truth. It's much better. But you got to really install in your children powerful beliefs. And that's with my daughter. When we didn't have money, I said, we're wealthy, we're rich, we're abundant. Because I never wanted to say, we haven't got the money. Because, you know, it's not about money. It's about growing up with everything. It's about growing up with high self-esteem, feeling that you're loved. There's lots of kids whose parents have got tons of cash. They never see them because they're always working, always on a plane. And, you know, most children don't want that. They want to be loved, connected, accepted. I, there's a friend of mine who is 28 years old. Hmm. When she was a kid, she, even if mum and dad went out for the evening, they used to create a massive anxiety for her. Yeah. So mum used to get her glam rags on and put the dressing gown over that and fall asleep with the daughter mm-hmm. until the daughter was asleep and then go yeah. out. Um, uh, a friend of mine last week was in the UK for 12 days. Mm. It's just the longest time she's been without seeing her three-year-old mm. or four-year-old, whatever he is. And she said, I'll never do that again. Mm. And I didn't get a chance to explain to her. I said, you'll never do it again because how much you missed him. Mm. But let me tell you, he's missed you 10 times mm. more than you've missed him. Mm. Because it, that, that sense of abandonment, yeah. someone goes, and, and the adjustment to that's quite different. Mm. Before the age of five, yeah, it's, it's really hard for children to adjust to the parent not being there. They don't understand it. Where do they go? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I want to I I go back to money because I really want to get this clear. I'm I'm really, really, <clears throat> after all of my years working in the investment industry, worried uh-huh. that most people get to the age of 65, they don't have enough mm-hmm. money. Most people want their kids to go to a great university, but they don't have enough money mm-hmm. to send them. Most people would like to have an abundance when it comes to wealth. Mm-hmm. Most people live in debt. They do. They're underinsured. Most don't plan because... Mm. There's a there's a fear that it's that it's either complicated mm. to understand mechanically how mm. it works, or they'll deal with it later. Mm. Okay, they'll, they'll get it done later on, and the impact is that it just ends up costing them more and more money to get to where they want to go. Now, most most people get to retirement without enough money. Mm, they do, and they've worked for thirty years, forty years, mm. and they stop. And they have to live a retirement, which potentially is 25 years long. A retirement, longer, yeah. Not living the life that they had worked their whole life to achieve, mm. you know. Retirement is when you hang your boots up, you get your carriage clock or your gold watch, you mm. leave the factory or the office, you get your pension and you're on your way. Go and enjoy the next 25 years and have a great retirement. Most people aren't able to do that because of the way they handled their finances along the way. 
Now, of course, there are financial advisors out there. There are financial planners and all these, these kinds of people that can help them. But it seems to be an area that people put off. Now, tell me the impact, if there is, you believe, of how people's spending behavior is so incredibly subconscious. I call it subconscious spend. We've got on our mobile yeah. phones now, we've got our credit yeah. cards. Yeah. And people are busy tap, 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 and always spending money because they get that endorphin mm. fix. It makes them feel sure. good when they buy the T-shirt, the flowers, whatever. Yeah. How can, how can we really train somebody's brain mm. to behave differently okay. to get where they need to go? Well, first of all, everything that you buy without exception is because of how it's going to make you feel. So many people think, you know, I need a nicer car. I need designer clothes, I need organic food, I need these holidays. Whatever you're buying, it's because of how it makes you feel. So if you're buying stuff that you don't need, you need to take a deep breath and think, can I get the feeling without the stuff? Like if I won the lottery, I'd feel amazing. And if I had designer clothes, I'd feel special or better. But you could feel all of those things without ever winning the lottery or indeed buying designer clothes. You're buying everything because of how it makes you feel. And the trick is to get the feeling without the stuff. And that's how you stop excessive spending, buying stuff you don't need because you're going for a feeling. But even bigger than that is this, I am enough. You see, the truth is when you know you're enough, you're okay, but when you're not enough, guess what you need? More. If you feel you're not enough, you need more alcohol, more cake, more medicine, more, more followers, more of everything. And so if you're buying a lot of stuff, you're buying it to fill the void, the emptiness inside, which I call the not enoughness. And if you can just start saying, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. Yeah, I could buy that designer bag, but I'm enough without it. You know, I could buy all that candy, but I don't need it because I'm enough. And I'm enough. Its strength is in its simplicity, but also its honesty, its power that all of our not enoughness is the driver for addictions and hoarding and, and buying stuff. And of course, you know, you do have to buy stuff. You have to pay your mortgage, buy groceries, pay for medicine. But when you know you're enough, you actually stop all that excessive stuff that you don't need. And so if you could, that's why we put, again, the I'm Enough movement into schools to get kids to stop, you know, and buying this to impress you. I'm buying this to make other people think I'm something. I'm buying this to feel more because I feel not enough. When you're going to buy, I am enough. I mean, look at Warren Buffett. He's not interested in any of those things. He's lived in the same house, driven the same car. And many people who get excessive wealth will often say, you know what? I don't really want it anymore. Um, many people with excessive wealth, the good thing is we all think, you know, you've got a spiritual people. You know, I've, if I want money, I've got to find a spiritual reason, otherwise it's greedy. But I've actually found many people with excessive wealth who say, well, there's nothing else to buy, so now I better do something. So Oprah Winfrey's got um, girls' schools going, Madonna's funded. Many people that are super wealthy behind the scenes are doing incredible things with their wealth. So you don't have to be spiritual to be wealthy. But often when you become wealthy, you become spiritual because you start to give it away to think, well, what can I do with this? Well, let's go back a second here because that's really important. Mm. As you've just been talking, I've just been saying to myself, I'm enough. Mm -hmm. Okay. And my yeah. kid, I've been saying over Good. and over, I am enough. I'm enough. I yeah. don't need these things. I am enough. Yeah. And it made me, it resonates with me because I feel like that. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, I don't need these things. 
I went through a phase of that when I was in my 20s of buying all the mm. crap that, you know, you, I felt people needed to see me in now. I couldn't give a shit. It, whatever I'm wearing, mm. I'm wearing. I yeah. tend to be well-dressed in terms of smart, but you won't see logos everywhere on mm. me in the way that the, you will on other people. It it has no significance to me. Mm. And it, it's, a, it's a pointless exercise. But for most people, you're absolutely right. It does have significance. Mm. So saying to yourself, I'm enough, how do you say it? Give me, give me practically how you say it. Is it, I say it in a mirror, looking yeah. at that mirror. Do I write it down a hundred times mm. and say it that way? Do I walk through the garden and go for a walk yeah. in the evening? Do I stand in the gym when I'm working yeah. out? How do, how do I actually okay. get it out? The first thing to do is say it in the shower. In the shower, it's a kind of a meditative state, or in the bath. So that the first time to get used to it is bath or shower, start to say it. Because what else are you going to do in the shower? Go, oh, I love this coconut conditioner. It's <laughs> the one time when there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, so you start to go, I'm enough, as a water hitch, I'm in the bath, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. And of course you'll have objections, I'm not really enough, I haven't got a nice car, I haven't got a nice house, haven't got designer labels, but then you'll realize that you are the one objecting. But you still keep saying it, yeah, you know, I don't have a great car, but I'm still enough, yeah, I don't have a big car, but I'm still enough. And eventually you run out of objections and it will sink in. So in the bath, in the shower, when you link it to an activity, like every time I clean my teeth, I'm going, I'm enough, I'm in my head. You link it to something, you'll keep doing it, and then put it all over your house, put it on post-it notes, put it on your mirror, write it on your fridge, I, you know, lipstick your mirror, change, you might notice I've got all these I'm enough bracelets, I've got it on a chalkboard, I've got cushions, and one of my clients said, you know, I put it on my children's pillowcase, I literally embroidered it, so the first thing they see and the last thing is that, and it's made such a difference, and one of my clients said, up my little girl said, Daddy, don't ever take that off the mirror, because... She was just coming over that age. She was very big in the fashion world and she was meeting supermodels and didn't look like one and felt so inadequate. She said, you know, I, I, I listened to your talk and I put that everywhere. And she said, Daddy, you must never take that off the mirrors. And I loved that. So write it on your mirror, write it on your fridge, write it on post-it notes, put it on your phone reminder so that every day it pings with I'm enough at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Put it securely and safely inside all of your parcels. You've got to type, obviously you need lots of squiggles and numbers and letters we don't need to be hacked but make i'm enough what opens your computer and your phone so you're saying it so much that it stops being what you're saying it becomes who you are which is then life changes and i have it all over my house i've done it so much now that it's just there but it's like putting butter on toast the toast can't object to hot butter it has to sink in the toast has nobody said i'm not going to absorb this hot butter if you put lotion on your skin your skin can't reject it even if, if you got it free on an aeroplane, whether you got it in Prada, it's irrelevant. Lotion is balm for your skin, but I'm enough is balm for your very soul. So say it, state it, affirm it. And when you're at home, you can say it in your head, but when you say, I am enough, and you say it with confidence and certainty, it's okay. You want to state it, affirm it, embody it, be it, become it. So it stops being what you say and it becomes who you are. And it's, it's, so we've got schools all over the world having kids make a little plaque for their desk that say, I'm enough. We've got schools saying it in assembly first thing. We have schools that said, you know, one, one of the schools in Spain said, I took all the kids that were the bullies and made them say I'm enough. And they all started crying. And I said, I didn't even know why I'm crying. And she said, but it's the bullying comes and you don't think you're enough. No one gets up and says, hey, I'm having a great life. I think I'll go to school and bully a kid. I'm having a wonderful time. I think I'll open my account and troll somebody. So we know that bullying and trolling comes from not enough. And so the schools that are doing that said, you know, bullying's just ended in this school because all the kids feel they're enough. 
the competitiveness that's negative has gone away. One, I've got a client with a travel agent. I put it on all the screens. I said, and all the girls working here are so different. They're not bitchy and competitive because they're all enough in their own unique way. And I really can't recommend enough. If everybody just did that, it's, you know, we all want to change the world, but that's a big ask. But if you want to change the world, change people by having people say, I'm enough. Wear it on a T-shirt, print it on your underwear, right? We've got people with tattoos all over themselves saying, I'm enough. I have a school in Croatia painted it all over their playground. And I love that, that people are really picking up that that's the message to give children, I'm enough. And if I'm enough, it's not like I'm going to sit on the couch eating potato chips now. It's like, well, if I'm enough, I can go out then and create the life I want. I can ask for more. I can get a pay rise, get a rise because I'm enough and I'm worth it, and I deserve it. And so behind the I'm enough is the I'm worth it. I deserve it. I'm worthy. You know, people find it hard to imagine that people will reject wealth and love. But if you've never had love, you know, you've heard, it's like trying to pick up a feral cat. You've heard of attachment disorder. Children who are never held, when you hold them, they don't like it. People who've never had love reject relationships. It makes them vulnerable. People who've never had wealth actually will reject. You go, look at those fat cats. Look at those rich people. I was actually coming back on a train a couple of years ago. I'd been speaking somewhere. My client bought me a first-class ticket, and I was in for it. And these two guys, they went, oh, this is where all the poshies are. We don't want to be in here. And they couldn't get out of that carriage fast enough. They're going, look at all those posh people. And it was so interesting because what they were doing is rejecting something that was unfamiliar. And that's the crux that your mind is hardwired and supercoated to reject what is unfamiliar. You know, if you were living in a fort in the Wild West, you wouldn't go, God, I'm really bored with all these people. Why don't I go meet those Native Americans? I need some variety in my life. If you were a kid, you know, when, it, when a child is two, they won't eat anything they don't know. I don't want that. It's got lumps in it because what's familiar kept you safe. You only ate what you knew. You stayed in the walls of your walled village and familiar made you safe. And all these years later, our brain wants to return to what's familiar and avoid what's unfamiliar. So people will say, oh, yeah, I met this guy. He was too good for me. What they're saying is their behavior was so unfamiliar, I went back to what I knew. And with wealth, if it's unfamiliar, you will reject it. You'll get rid of it. I worked with a lottery winner who said I was working in a cookie factory making. He was making like 250 pounds a week. It was some years ago. And he won the lottery. And he said, I didn't even like it. He said, it was so weird. If I paid for them, they would say, stop showing off. And if I didn't, they'd go, oh, you want us to pay for the drinks? You're, you're a millionaire now. So I could never get it right. And I left my little estate and bought a big house. And I was so lonely. He said, now I've lost all the money. And I'm back on the estate and I'm happy. Because he didn't have a chance to make it familiar. So when you wouldn't come into a lot of money, you need immediately to get financial advice and planning and have someone explain to you Otherwise, you'll just get rid of it all because that's familiar. We haven't got much money to spend it. So you've got to remember your mind is super coded to go back to what's familiar and avoid what's And so for you, when you lost the eight kilos, that wasn't actually familiar. You went back to eating all the old stuff and putting it back on because safety is in what we know. Our mind feels safe with what's familiar, what is known, and what is comfortable. It feels unhappy with what's unfamiliar, unknown, and uncomfortable. But the good news is if your mind likes what's familiar, you can make anything you like familiar. And the fastest way is to make self-praise familiar, to make self-belief familiar. Because 
you know, if you put a bit of silicone on your finger and shove it in your eye, that's probably the most unfamiliar thing you'll ever do. But if you do it every day, you could put a lens in without a mirror. You also do that whole thing of squeezing it off, which is really unfamiliar, like squeezing your eyeball. But you can make anything familiar. And so you want to move away from procrastination, self-sabotage, which are nothing more, by the way, than not feeling enough. And you want to move into what's, what's good stuff to make familiar, self-praise, self-belief being good about myself, you know, stretching myself. So make good stuff. I mean, make the other stuff, putting yourself down and going, oh, this is too hard. Make that unfamiliar because if your mind likes what's familiar, which it does, your job is to make good stuff familiar and negative stuff like running out of money or wasting money or, you know, people without money often spend it on unnecessary things or they have this blocking thought. I don't know how to make money, but who would have thought that you could become a millionaire now from shaping eyebrows, from doing makeup tutorials? You know, there are people now making millions selling old, dirty trainers. So the belief that, well, you've got to go to university, you've got to come from money to make money just isn't true. There are people all over the world who become millionaires doing the crazy things you'd never have thought of. So it isn't true anymore that you need to come from money or even come from university, but you do need to have a belief I have a gift, I have a unique skill set, and I'm going to learn how to monetize it. In fact, it's actually a three-step process, I'll tell you very quickly. If you want to make money, the first thing you're going to do is sit down every day and go, I'm worth it, I deserve it, I'm attracting it. You have to do that step first, and the more you find it horrible, the more you've got to sit with it until it feels less horrible. You know, I can ask for more. I can ask people to invest in me and, and change your language. When you've done that, your next step is to look at what you really want. So I could say, I really wanted to be a writer, but that's not enough. I want to be a writer. I could write and never sell a book. I'm still a writer. I could write a failure. I'm still a writer. So when you look at what you want, you say, okay, I want to write a best-selling book, but even more a best-selling book that helps people. So you've got to really look at what you want because anything that you require will require you to learn something new. So if you want to be a writer, uh -huh. unless you can learn to be a speaker as well, you might never sell enough books because now you've got to speak on blogs and go on tour. You might say, I want to I want to find love. So again, the first step is I'm worth it, I'm worth it, I deserve it, I'm attracting it. You've got to spend time on that. And then you've got to look at what kind of love do you want? I mean, you don't want just any love with anyone. What That's kind of amazing love. Yeah, that lasts forever. I mean, do you want love for an hour, a day, a week with some idiot? What do you want? And then you'll see that, oh, what I want requires me to learn something new. You know, like many women will say, I'm in the yoga class. Well, you need to go to the weights room. There's no men in yoga. There's no men in the... But if you want love, then your first step is to believe you're worth it. And your second step is to find the person you want. Where are they? And go and put yourself around them with the belief that you're worth it and you will end up with them. So I want money. I want to create wealth and monetize more money, but what am I going to do? What have I got to learn? Or, and then the third step is to actually do it because many people won't do the third step because they haven't done the first step. So they know what they want. There's that great saying, I want to be a millionaire so bad, but they don't really know what that looks like, what that requires, what you're going to have to do. And they can't do step three because they haven't done step one. So you could say, I I've got an idea for a product. It could be a granola bar or a skin cream or an app, but you have to take that to market. You've got to go and find people that will invest in you, promote you, believe in you. And it's really hard to do step three 
if you haven't done step one. You know, my daughter can't yeah. carry out the action because you're overwhelmed yeah. or you're intimidated or or you have that bit. It'll never work. Yeah, because why me? Yeah, who wants me? Who am I? Yeah, who am I to? Be? Who are you not to do it? Everyone is born with a gift and a talent, and everyone can monetize that if they only knew how. But the third step can't work because. You can't go out and say, hey, I've got this great idea. Many people have a great idea. It's been in a drawer for 15 years because they're so scared of rejection. What if you don't like it? You know, there's a guy who went on to Dragon's Den with a trunky, you know, the little suitcase all over yeah. airport, and they laughed it. They laughed it. They said, this is ridiculous. He had that, I'll show you, who's so angry that they rejected him, but he went off and he got investors. And now you see that everywhere. Eminem, when he wanted to be a rapper, they said, you can never be a rapper. You're a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. He said, I was so angry at that that I put it into my rapping and he went off to rap at an event. He didn't win, but someone in the audience saw in him something and we don't even know who won because they're not as big as Eminem, who in his turn coached Ed Sheeran, who said, you know, I've got red hair and white skin and big glasses. And Ed Sheeran was like sleeping in bus shelters and busking because of that drive to be a musician. And it was Eminem that said, look, you can be anything. You've got to have self-belief, but you've got to have drive and ambition. And the best plan in the world won't work if you don't. So have the self-belief first, because the self-belief gives you the drive, the ambition, the moment to keep going. To It's not do you get rejected, it's how quickly do you come back from rejection. Most people who've made it, including me, have been rejected a lot. Oh, I don't like your book. I don't like you. That's never going to work. You can't really go through life without being rejected, but you can learn something. I'm not letting that in, and I'm going to keep going. So if you do those three, I'm worth it. I'm going to take a deep look at what I want and what it requires, and then I'm going to do the work. It makes you almost unstoppable, but you ha no one else can do that for you. Got it. Wow. And that's what we should teach in schools. Yeah. You're worthy of something amazing. But what does that require of you? What could you do? What gift have you got? And how are you going to work and monetize that? that that's what we're not teaching kids, and we really should. You're planning to move here to the UAE? Yeah, I am. Okay, so there's an impact you could potentially have in schools. While you're here. Mm, it's one of the reasons I'm here, moving here, because of the school system. So you creating greater impact to those kids is going to yeah. give them the opportunity to yeah. live a more fulfilling life. Mm. That's awesome. Okay, so just before we finish, how successful as a business has RTT become for you? How many people have you trained and then what kind of an impact is that having across the world? So I've trained over 15,000 therapists all over the world, which probably, 15, I don't I, it was 15,000 last year. I don't know how many it is now, but every year we're training more people to go out in the world and, and do something amazing. You know, a therapist's job, by the way, is to empower their clients and give them freedom. You can get very confused, but that's your job. Empower your clients, give them freedom from their issues and their pain. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of people doing it. And, you know, it's very busy. There's always a lot going on. But my passion is, is to really go into the education system. Really, my passion is to put myself out of business so that if I could work with children, they won't ever need therapy. I mean, that, that's a long way, but that's my goal. Put myself out of business so nobody needs therapy by getting into the school system. Of course, you can't really put yourself... There'll always be people who need therapy. And actually, what the world is doing now, which is making automated cars, automated drivers, automated banks, and automated stores is making people... It's a terrible thing because our DNA, the thing we require the most is connection. 
we're hardwired to find connection, avoid rejection. There are a lot of people who say, I go to my little shop to have a conversation. I go to the bank to talk to them. I get in the cab and I talk to the driver. We're taking all of that away and we're going to make people so disconnected. They're going to need more therapy than ever because we are disconnecting people, replacing them with AI. And it's really bad for people's self-esteem to say, hey, you're a good designer, but I've got an AI now. They're better than you. They're cheaper than you. I don't need you. And people are like, but we're... If our wiring is to find connection and avoid rejection, what we're doing is rejecting people and disconnecting them every day. So we're going to need more therapies than ever to, to deal with what we're doing to people. You know, you know, in, in COVID, we saw that and so many kids are homeschooled. But anything that disconnects you is a very bad and anything that connects you is a good idea. So at the end of the day that's why we need people like you yeah we need people like you to inspire and educate and teach people to become yeah. great therapists but more importantly get into those schools and make a difference yeah and what a great place to start marissa it's been great chatting to you i could sit and talk to you all afternoon <laughs> it's been absolutely joyful just my last question before you go what's your favorite quote Oh, my favorite quote is easy. It says, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears may cause other organs to weep. Because I see that all the time. People who say, oh, my dad died. I never cried. My husband left me. I just went back to work. Or something happened. And when you can't express your feelings, which are the most real thing you will ever have, your body has to do it for you. There's so many of the things we see. In fact, 70% of people turning up in accident and emergency have real issues, but they're not caused by broke disease organs. They're caused by diseased thinking. So when we can't allow ourselves to feel, I would say to my friends, you've got to feel your feelings until they no longer require to be felt. It's what I call triple A. Be aware of your feelings. Accept them. And they're not to say, I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling frustrated. But when you don't do that aware, except articulate, and you just eat them or... You know, people try to cake their feelings or drink their feelings or shop their feelings or eBay their feelings or medicate their feelings, but they're so real they come back. And that's why I love that expression, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will cause your other organs to weep. Because if you think about what that means, it makes you realize that you're a person and you're allowed to have your feelings and you should share them. Marissa Peer, thank you so much. Oh, thank you too. It's been amazing. Thank you for asking me.